You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Brenna Hassett, who is affiliated with the University of Central Lancashire, UCLan, and also the National Historical Museum in London, and the author of a couple books. This one right here called Growing Up Human, The Evolution of Childhood, and the previous book, Built on Bones, 15,000 Years of Urban Life and Death. Joining us today from a remote island in the Aegean, welcome, Brenna. Hi, thanks for having me. So this latest book, it says on the book, a gem of a book, and it really is, it's a little gem of a book, and it covers a lot of ground. And the main thrust of it is that we're weird. I mean, humans are weird. I've done a lot of podcasts on the weirdness of humans, but in particular, what makes us weird is our childhood, right? You describe us as the ape that never grew up, and you talk about our almost perpetual childhood, and particularly today, because it just keeps getting longer and longer and longer. Even Obamacare recognizes that we are children until we're 35, I think. And you pose this question, what is childhood for? And throughout the book, you talk about the different things that make our childhood in particular unique. And so I want to talk about that. But before I get into that, I have to ask you this question. What the heck is bioarchaeology? Because that is your stated profession. It is a real job that you can have if you get enough degrees. I'd like to get that out there. But um, really, bioarchaeology refers to the archaeological sciences that deal with living things, or of course, in our case, once living things, because it's too late to help anyone now. So my particular specialty might be also called biological anthropology. So my specialist subject is the bones and the teeth, very especially the teeth, of humans who lived in the past and, of course, our ancestors and near relatives. Okay, and I think we'll talk a bit about that and how that offers some insight into the sort of history of childhood. But what I liked about the book Growing Up Human is that you describe childhood as money spent, as an investment. So as an economist, I, of course, am going to gravitate to that definition, right? But what it means is that it represents the intergenerational transmission of wealth broadly defined, right? And when you make an investment, you're making an investment presumably because you expect some kind of return. And in evolution, of course, that return is always in the form of, right, more offspring. So humans and primates in in general are making enormous amounts of investments. And this happened as a result of a couple different, quote, choices made by humans over time. Is this a common way of thinking about it among evolutionary biologists and evolutionary folks? I think if we had a few more recent parents or parents of young children actively researching this area, we would get a lot more people who were concerned directly with the economic impact of small children. At least I I certainly became more interested once I had kids of my own in the sheer cost of them. But um, I think it's not always a direct economic approach, but I think it's a really interesting framework for thinking about not just how much we're investing in them, because that is 
what we do with childhood. It's a period where someone else is investing in us rather than us investing in other people. That's the definition I'd like to use for childhood. But I think it's really interesting to try and think about it in terms of different types of investment because all animals invest in their children. They have to spend the calories, the energy in order to build them. I talk about, you know, poor little barn spiders who um, perish after they have their babies. They've still invested. They've still put a lot of effort into having those babies. It is nothing like the 40-year failure to launch human childhood that I was um, perhaps attempting to suggest to, I don't know, my own parents that was a perfectly acceptable lifestyle choice. Well, the investment comes in three forms, right? So there's the caloric investment, which every parent does to some degree. But then there's this social capital, which only a subset of animals do. And then there's material capital, which is uniquely human, right? So I guess we, you know, we're going to walk through all of those. Maybe we'll, we'll start with the first one. In evolutionary biology, we talk about fast versus slow reproductive strategies, right? Or K versus T selection. But we also talk about altricial and precocial offspring. And I was hoping that you would have a two by two, right? Because in business school, we always have two by twos. But it seems like humans, or at least primates, are almost unique among animals in that they fit into that quadrant where, on the one hand, we have slow reproductive strategy, but we also are altricial. Why is that such an uncommon combination? Well, it's expensive, I think, is the problem. So primates, so everything's sort of on a, on a grade. So you can think of that barn spider who pretty much taps out after the babies exist and hatch to other animals that do provide some care. So um, egg-laying animals like birds who at least have to make that nice egg that's going to help the baby out and then probably provision the baby bird for a while. And then you've got mammals. Mammals invented an entirely new form of provisioning, milk, which is its own special miracle. And then you get things like primates, which are, of course, mammals, so they've got to do all of this extra provisioning. But then they seem to give a little more time where the baby, the offspring, isn't that good at provisioning for itself. So that burden gets taken up by the investing generation, by the parents, and of course, all of the uh, parents, friends, helpers, neighbors, aunties, and so on. Right. So usually when you are going with the live fast, die young strategy, you are producing offspring that are capable more or less of fending for themselves, right? So like fish and frogs and so forth. But when you create something that as a slower life strategy, usually you produce something that is ready to go. Like you talk about the rats versus giraffes. So first of all, I mean, why is that trade-off? Why do we have that trade-off? And why is it that it's so rare that we see things that aren't on that trade-off axis? So one of the reasons that we have these go-slow lives and these go-slow children might be how many of them we expect to survive. If you think about animals that have babies that are literally hordes of babies, there's not a good survival rate. It's because there's safety in numbers because a lot of those numbers are going to be cannon fodder. Whereas for an animal that's investing heavily, even before the baby's born, actually, we've put a lot of money down. If you think about the caloric cost of building a baby giraffe, which it turns out is huge, you are going to want that investment to be protected. So you're going to make a bunch of other choices that mean that all of that effort doesn't go for naught. 
a lot of times that K versus R strategy that is no longer like quite the flavor of the month in terms of evolutionary biology, but we can think about it fairly easy terms for describing fast and slow living, is related to environmental stability, danger from predation, you know, how likely are your kids to survive because you're not going to want to put a lot of effort in if they're not very likely to survive. So we appear as a hugely investing species to basically be willing to put that investment in because we're pretty sure that we can keep those babies going for all 15, 20, 30 years that we need to. But the unique choices that humans make begin, it seems, even before conception, right? Like our mating strategies are unusual, right? So we engage in pair bonding, right? So why pair bonding? Some other animals use this strategy. What is it about pair bonding? Well, pair bonding on the face of it looks like a stupid idea. (laughs) So if you think the only outcome from any mating strategy should be to have as many babies as possible, pair bonding is not for you. It is not going to give you maximum numbers. But what pair bonding might do is give you maximum numbers that survive. So it's not common in the animal kingdom. It's not common at all, unless you count birds, and birds go in for it big style. We all know birds quite often mate for life. There are a lot of species, albatrosses, for instance, that just don't reproduce again if they lose their partner. Primates and humans, not quite the same thing. There's actually a lot of argument in evolutionary terms about why this would evolve, because the aforementioned, you know, it must be better, especially for the person with a small gamete, you know, the male, to go off and spread their seed and have as many children as possible. And so theories have ranged from having a male pair bonded to the mom means it's protected from infanticide because we know that monkeys occasionally raid other monkeys and kill the babies. It might be that that was the best solution to finding a woman. If the females are roaming the jungle then and you want a female, well, you're going to have to stick very close and follow her while she roams. But I think one of the interpretations that I really think sort of gels for me is that It really cements another pair of hands to help with what are essentially these helpless, altricial babies. Human babies, as I I think we'll probably go into, are very expensive, and you need all of the help that you could possibly get with them. So I, I think it's very interesting that in primates who invest so heavily in their children, we think that pair bonding might have evolved separately as many as four times. So different species have come up with this as a solution at different times. But for us, it does seem like pair bonding is a really useful solution because it gets us something incredibly valuable to baby, which is dad and his amazing sort of assistance with calories, carrying, care, and all the rest of it. So, I mean, human babies are greedier than babies of other primates. They need more care, more assistance. It seems like with chimps, at least, I mean, the so-called dads don't do much, right? I mean, compared to what human dads do. It's interesting. So we, chimpanzee society, very different from ours. And it is a society. And we can tell because there are chimpanzees and bonobos. And bonobos look remarkably similar to chimps, but actually um, have been diverged for the last sort of million years or so and have an utterly different sort of social milieu in which they have to act. So chimpanzees do have very different social bonds, but we actually have started to see little bits of research that show chimpanzee dads might not be the deadbeats previously advertised, that um, they do a little bit more grooming and attention paying than perhaps 
we noticed we have a hard time because of the type of primate we are and our annoying human habit of envisioning everything through our own cultural lenses. We don't always recognize what investment is. We don't always recognize what the hard work of parenting is. So this sort of comes out famously in studies of work in um, societies uh, where they do like persistence hunting, like uh, in the Kalahari, the sand people, where, you know, they say to them, oh, nobody works more than 15 hours. It's amazing. It's like 15 hour work week sounds great. However, it was because in the 1960s, the only thing the researcher could conceive of as work was chasing animals. So anything else that got done, the water getting, the food digging, the child care, the storytelling, the carrying babies, the cleaning babies, wasn't work. <laughs> so sometimes we have a hard time stripping our own cultural expectations of what being a primate dad might look like from other species. Yeah. I mean, throughout the book, you talk about how the digging sciences professions and other related professions, they've taken a look at the historical data or the archaeological data through pre-existing lenses. And I think throughout the book, you're trying to shed some of those pre-existing lenses. Is that because of the makeup of the profession? I mean, why do you suppose that is? I think it has a lot to do with, yeah, who you get to do science. So my side project at Trailblazers, which is trailblazers.com, is a little project that actually unearths the kind of hidden history of women in the digging sciences. So we find the careers and legacies of women who, for whatever reason, history has kind of pass by and sort of show that they did make a contribution. And I think actually, the more diverse people you have making a contribution, the less likely you are to get stuck behind this cultural lens. We have terrible tendencies, um, I think like every other science, to see everything in terms of our own cultural moment. So when computational science became a big thing in the sort of late 60s, 70s, 80s, when we started to get these powerful computing machines in universities that you could punch cards and feed into. And your younger members of your audience will have no idea what I'm talking about. But um, the computational approaches to the human past where we could, for instance, count up how many hours someone worked and look at it across societies and do some modeling and do some statistics, and that would give us all our answers. We now don't quite think the same way about how we should do our science. But it is very interesting that in the 1970s and 80s, when a lot of women started joining primatology and paleoanthropology, which had been up until then very male-dominated fields, we suddenly got an outbreak of interest in what women primates were doing. Right, and it seems like you know some of the people in the field are trying to tell a story where the current world is the pinnacle of human evolution, right? You know, the nuclear family. Ah, we've just spent all these years trying to get to the nuclear family. And then you've got this other group of folks who are sort of these paleo-aspirational people who are trying to find some Eden in the past, right? So, you know, you've got the paleo-dieticians, and I think you talk about the paleo-parents. Is that a real thing now, the paleo-parent movement? It is. I actually didn't think it was, but I did... Google it while researching the book, and there was a whole website, and it was an eye-opening experience as someone who has looked very closely at uh, what a sort of old Stone Age childhood might be. I can guarantee that it did not have a website, step one. But it's a really interesting insight into how we view childhood because we take it very seriously as humans because it's really important. It's how our species survives, right? There would be no more humans if we didn't have child humans. 
and we've got to take care of them and we've got to very specifically give them the right sort of childhood so they become the right sort of people. That's why we're making all those investments and some of those more complicated investments that only humans make, I think we might talk about in a bit. Those are solid reasons behind why we're doing that. But that said, the sort of idea that there is a one true way to parent is really insidious because it preys on every insecurity you have as a new parent, which is, oh my God, this machine that I have purchased from the store and brought home is glitching. I don't, I can't turn it off and on again. There is no helpline that is working. What on earth am I supposed to do? And a lot of people look for answers in a sort of imagined past where if the phone wasn't ringing off the hook, if the television wasn't on, if you didn't have to go back to work after three weeks or something, that actually child rearing would be much easier. And a lot of that stuff is true. There are all sorts of things about how we sort of integrate people who have babies into our economic system that don't work for a lot of people. And you know that's obvious by statistics of who falls out of work, who ends up in low paid work and that kind of thing. But it's very interesting to me that one of the solutions that people have gone for is this idea that there was a pure, true way. And if you just dedicate yourself to only things that would have been available prior to about 15,000 BP, everyone would just be much happier. And it turns out that, you know what, complex carbs are great. <laughs> it's really nice. You can put sugar with them, maybe a little frosting, some cinnamon. It's great. I am never going to advise a new parent to avoid a donut. I probably should. I'm not that kind of doctor, though. So. Well, I think one of the points you're making is that it's odd that humans have come to dominate the planet when it's so difficult, actually, for people to even get pregnant. You talk about the pregnancy process and how, first of all, it's difficult to get pregnant to begin with and how there's a very high rate of spontaneous miscarriages. And then giving birth is extremely difficult. I mean, very, very high mortality rate for childbirth specifically for humans. I think given that we can all sort of agree that reproducing the species is the key to reproducing the species, that this is the evolutionary end goal, we have as humans some really remarkable problems with it. So just to start with the sort of issues with getting and staying pregnant, we have, like all placental mammals, we have an evolutionary history of capturing a little RNA virus and stealing some of its coding in order to create a temporary organ that appears only while pregnant. And this whole system that we have, this whole edifice for getting pregnant in humans, is basically controlled by a series of hormones that are controlled by this little RNA sort of virus organ, which just seems very dodgy if you think about it. But it is, in fact, how we work. So not only do we have what's potentially a very picky and choosy reproductive system, so we have a hard time. Most uh, primates, if they mate at the correct time, they got a 90% chance of getting pregnant. It's just like your high school biology teacher told you. Don't worry. Humans, it's actually a third. It's about a 30% chance. And that's assuming that you've got health and you haven't got the potentially up to 50% decline in male fertility that humans have seen in the last 70, 80 years, which is a real thing. But once you actually get pregnant, then you have to deal with the fact that you have one of the most demanding fetuses in the animal kingdom because our placenta and essentially guinea pigs allows the baby to control too much. 
it sort of bathes the baby directly in the mother's blood, very sort of Countess Bathory style. And this hormonal signaling mechanism that controls all the nutrition actually allows it to ask a little too much of the mom, which leads to things like gestational diabetes, preeclampsia. These are conditions that actually kill mothers that just don't exist in other species. And it's because we are feeding an incredibly demanding fetus who then gets huge, very large, very big, very fat. In the book, I have a diagram that gives you a little circle for uh, various primate pelvis and the pubic inlet where the birth happens versus the size of the head. You can look at them all, you see a nice big circle, a nice small circle, and then you look at humans and you go, uh-oh, this is a problem. Yeah, it hurt just to look at that. It hurt just to look at that picture, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I refer to it as a sofa in a stairwell problem for people who have seen Friends or read Douglas Adams, the first iteration of that joke. But our babies are huge. And we used to think as evolutionary anthropologists, actually, we had a very good reason for understanding why we had such difficult births. We, unlike the rest of the primates, walk upright. We have to stabilize our legs by having a pelvis that's a certain shape, muscles that are in certain places. So the whole apparatus has been adapted slightly so we can walk upright, but it takes us right to the edge of what we can manage in terms of birthing. The other thing that we really like doing, which is having giant-brained babies. We're big on baby brains. We want smart babies. So our species has gone, well, we want to walk and we want to have big heads. And that's where the problem is. The really interesting thing is that might not actually be the explanation for why we have so many problems giving birth. There are squirrel monkeys who have an absolute terrible time giving birth, particularly captive ones. And there are twists and turns during the birth process that we used to think were uniquely human. We found out actually chimpanzees do them. Chimpanzees have no sofa and stairwell problem whatsoever. They've got plenty of room. And also when we look at what we think are the physical correlates of our upright walking big brain problem, big hips in women, narrower hips in men, very Shakira style, actually those depend a lot more on geography than perhaps we think. And most mammals have slightly different shaped hips in the males and females, even cats who have no problem whatsoever having ridiculous numbers of kittens. So we actually, what seems like a perfect just-so story might actually be a just-so story. And it's worth thinking about the fact that we seem to have these special placentas that allow us to drain the mother in the baby's favor and build these really big fat babies, like huge babies, like very pinchable, cuddly, very cute, but they are very large. And the fact that we can get so much nutrition into them while they're still inside of us might be part of the problem. Because babies are born premature and they continue to grow and their brains continue to grow. So why not just give birth after eight months instead of nine months? I mean, wouldn't that kind of solve the problem? Is the nutritional transfer so much better pre-birth and post-birth that it makes sense to take it all the way to the edge? I think the idea there is that there is only so much nutrition you can get down the line. We're going up against a sort of genetic programming that says, well, this is how long you should do this, and this is how long you should do this. And we push the borders of it. We probably push them fairly slowly. So if you show up in 100,000 years and everybody's born at seven months, but instantly handed a, you know, a full Happy Meal, 
or the sort of nutritional equivalent of, then I think you have your answer that that's what's been controlled. And it's a fascinating question. People are still actively researching this. I think there's an anthropologist called Holly Dunsworth who does a lot of really interesting kind of thought experiments about this that I've always found really interesting. But I actually had a relative who died of preeclampsia, and I had never heard of it prior to that happening. And it was actually shocking to me that such a thing could occur. But you also talk about how when a woman gets pregnant, her calcium stock gets depleted. The baby's literally sucking all the nutrition out of her bones even. And that's why I guess it's so surprising that even though it's super hard to get pregnant, women can still have babies under really, really terrible conditions, right? So I just did a podcast recently where we talked about the Dutch hunger winter and the impact that it had on the babies. But the surprising thing is that they were able to have babies at all, right, given those conditions. One would think that the mother's body would just say, hey, you know, let's just cut our losses and save it for another day, right? Well, I think there are mechanisms for shutting down reproduction. And we used to think that they were almost all sort of caloric, that our human ancestors would have had much more widely spaced children. That's why the Paleolithic isn't full of people, because they would be on the limits of nutritional sufficiency themselves. So each pregnancy would be very taxing and you wouldn't want to double up on those. So you'd have babies that were much further apart. We now actually have a pretty good idea that while you do need ish a minimum body fat level to actually reproduce, which is sort of around 17%, which is already deep into very low BMI territory. Actually, the thing that stops women going back into a reproductive state is essentially suckling, is breastfeeding. So if you nurse eight times a day, you stay in this state. So it's not actually necessarily the nutritional status. And of course, that whole thing about reproduction being key to reproducing the species well, we can make investment choices here and there. But one of the things that we do like to invest in once we've got a viable embryo is diverting resources to that baby. If you think about the sort of signaling mechanism in a human pregnancy being much more baby-led than maternally-led, I think you start to see how our very demanding babies basically can take advantage of that. So would that be a signal of external wealth? If you suckle less frequently, does that mean... I'm thinking of the functionality of this. Does that mean that you're in a more prosperous condition and therefore can presumably afford another child because you either have a wet nurse or you have some other form of external nutrition that you can wean them earlier, right? So why would nursing be the key signal that would stimulate fertility? So I think one of the most interesting things and something in my own research is very interested in is that we have something about 15 to 12,000 years ago that changes the face of our planet, which is that as humans, we seem to suddenly have a massive demographic boom. From a fairly sparsely populated Paleolithic, we suddenly have people everywhere. And this goes hand in hand. And that's not from antibiotics. <laughs> no. Not from antibiotics. No, though interestingly, uh, people may have discovered a kind of basically fermentation process that led to antibiotics something like 3,000 years ago. But that's a different story. No, this, is, this happens right at the same time as a sort of twin punch of two other things. One is settling down. And two is reliance on cultivated plant and animal foods. So taken together, we call this package the Neolithic the new stone age, where everyone's still got stone tools, but the very critical changes are 
people are starting to settle down, stay in one place, and they're starting to rely more on plant foods, a little less on hunted and gathered foods, and it leads to the kind of village life. It's the invention of village life that a lot of us know. The thing that we do seem to see alongside this population boom, which suddenly coats the world in small villages, is evidence that perhaps birth spacing is what's changing. So we know ethnographically that other groups who went from a hunting, gathering, a foraging lifestyle to a more settled one suddenly go from having babies about every four years to having babies about every two years. This, of course, if you take it en masse, is an exponential growth in the number of babies. Well, it's not exponential, but anyway, this- Is that like because of primitive cream of wheat? Is that the idea that they would start to feed their children non-milk food relatively early on or to give them maybe even non-human dairy? So that's one of the ideas. The thing is, is we did not work out dairy for, it took a couple thousand years once we got the animals to work out that you could milk them. And especially to get the kind of milk that would actually last. I mean, dairy cows now are so hyperbred, like you can't believe it. But um, the thing that might have made a difference, actually, is that whole staying put versus moving around. So we know from other animals and other milk composition, if you'd look at the milk in other animals, and again, cows are very helpful because there's a huge industry and a lot of science about it. But there's a researcher called Katie Hind, who I think is just fascinating. She does a lot of really cool work. But she's pointed out that essentially human milk is a lot like a zebra's. And that's not because we are stripy and cute and wander the plains. It is because we and zebras maintain the same proximity to our babies. Our babies are always with us, or probably would have been if we were carrying them while we were foraging, while we were wandering around. If your baby is always with you, then it can always have a drink whenever it wants. It means your milk is actually going to be a little bit more watery. It's not going to be like something like a hooded seal, which has four days to get a pup off the ice and done before a polar bear eats it. You know, it's going to be something like a little zebra baby who's right next to mom and can drink every five minutes if it feels like. So if we think about eight nursing episodes per day being the thing that prevents you from getting pregnant again, then actually that kind of thing is, yeah, that's going to keep you from getting pregnant for a long time. However, if you start to leave the baby with grandma, aunties, uncles, and babies after six months can consume complementary foods. They don't necessarily need to have, it's very good for them to have breast milk, but it's possible that they survive. But if you're leaving them for six or seven hours a time, maybe they're not getting their eight nursing episodes in a day, and suddenly you return to fertility. So it's actually a really interesting question whether our whole massive boom in population that basically made us the fast reproducing species that is currently winning on numbers front for any primate ever, you know, we're in the billions and the nearest, I think chimpanzees are 100,000 or something like that. We have won the animal reproduction stakes, but this might actually be down to the way in which we're caring for our babies, including, you know, the way in which we're carrying them. And there's incredible heterogeneity, it seems, in nursing practices, not only across geographies today, but across geographies in the past, depending on I guess whether they, were, I mean, you talk about the park versus ride <laughs> distinction, but even in humans, there's this incredible heterogeneity. And I found it interesting, you point this out, that in less developed countries today, it's the poor people that nurse the most. And in the wealthy countries, it's the rich people that nurse the most, right? 
It's kind of strange. It is until you work out that actually a lot of that might be about which people are likely to be involved in a wage economy and able to either step away from a kind of what we think of as a workplace, a modern workplace, and which people simply aren't for status reasons. Um, so in a rich country, it's very clear that you need to be in a very well-paid job, a good position in order to get the kind of leave to breastfeed a baby, not even for the sort of perhaps standard two years, but just for the first six months, which is what the WHO sort of says is really the minimum healthy amount of exclusively breastfeeding a baby. And in developed countries, we see it's almost impossible. It's, you know, 1%, 3% of mothers actually manage to, to hit that six-month target, which is crazy because, of course, that is what we're designed to do. But if you think about having to go back to work, the looks you get if you try and breastfeed in public in certain places, various taboos against feeding babies, taking babies places, then you really have thrown up huge impediments. And that's for most people, you have to be wealthy in order to avoid them. Whereas in societies where people at the very lowest part of the socioeconomic spectrum, the women may not be in a kind of wage economy. They may be at home in a sort of more informal economy they actually would have no access to, no financial ability to purchase the kind of supplemental milk that uh, gets marketed. And I think it was a huge scandal in the 70s when a series of companies were very actively marketing formula milk to developed countries and promoting it as healthier than the mother's milk, much more nutritious. And of course, the thing is that if you don't have sterilized facilities in which to make this, it can be incredibly dangerous for the baby. And it's also not actually nearly as ideal as the mother's own milk. Um, I talk in the book a lot about milk is something that responds to the temperature, to whether your baby's dehydrated or not. Time of day. Yeah, time of day. Morning milk wakes you up. Nighttime milk has tryptophan, the sleepy turkey hormone. And you think of all these poor people who are you know, at work trying to pump in some janitor's closet who just aren't able to kind of take advantage of that really optimal evolutionary magic that is milk. And you think, well, that's kind of unfortunate. I was a, a formula baby. I was born in the 60s. And it might have had something to do with my mother giving sedated birth. And I think you pointed out that the connection there, that nursing is kind of tricky. And there's kind of a you know sweet spot moment where you have to do this. And it also requires a bit of training. I mean, you need help sometimes to figure this out. And giving birth itself for humans often requires help. You need a midwife. You need other folks around, which is very unusual, right? Other animals don't need help giving birth, and they certainly don't need help learning how to nurse. So this was sort of a co-evolution of biology and culture, right? Yeah, I think the thing to remember with humans is that every single evolutionary adaptation that we've made, we have adjusted the levers of the adaptation with our culture. Our culture is essentially sort of another mechanism by which we move our adaptations forward or backward or sideways, or whatever it is. So if you think about something that ought to be straightforward, like birth, and then you look at the actual mechanics of it for humans, which involve the sort of sofa and stairwell problem, you realize that actually humans do regularly need assistance in birth and therefore might actually benefit from having things like close friends 
friends that you trust to be around you while you're giving birth. So there's been a series of evolutionary thoughts that say that actually our inability to do some of these things that ought to be hardwired without learning them first is actually a really important process. It is absolutely exactly the case that human beings use their culture as a lever of biological adaptation. It's something that both drives and responds to our evolutionary process. So, you know, it's something that I think actually comes in really interestingly when we think about this long childhood that we've adapted to, because in some cases it's long and getting longer. And that's something that's uh, quite culturally determined as well. Well, yeah, and we've only talked about the initial stages. I mean, the bigger difference has to do with this social capital, right? And this is why childhood exists, presumably, is so that kids can learn what it means to be an adult. And to be an adult human is a lot more complicated than to be an adult giraffe or horse. And so, you know, you talk about play and work, right? What's the difference? Do we have a distinct boundary between play and work? If a kid is carrying around a doll, I guess we would say that's play. But if they're helping out in the kitchen, that's work. Both of them seem somehow necessary to learn the ropes. I think, um, I guess you could judge it by whether or not you could eat what the kid was cooking. (laughs) So play would uh, sort of arguably be something that's without purpose, something that is without like set expectation of a goal. And people who study play very seriously, of course, have a more serious definition. But it is really interesting that we can look at different species and how they spend childhood, what they use childhood for. And we can see very, very clearly that social animals are the ones that have long childhoods, not even just in mammals. Crows, which have very, very complicated societies, they need to learn the rank of every other crow, and there's a lot of crows in a murder. Crows have a very long juvenile period too. And primates all have an extended juvenile period compared to their size, etc., for other mammals. And us, of course, longest of all. And I think the very clear answer is, you know, what are we doing? We're trying to learn to be a better monkey. And we have a couple ways we can do that. So play is actually one of them. But all animals play. We, you can see videos of those self-same crows on the internet doing things like sliding up and down roofs in the snow, having a good time. But play, really importantly, allows a non-threatening chance to practice your social skills, your social interactions. It's something that's very important for building bonds, for building networks. And when we're talking about investing social capital, which is what we do with the entirety of the time that we are not feeding the children and investing in in embodied capital, is essentially basically giving them the skills and the network on which to develop those skills. So social capital, in this case, for primates and for humans, is actually finding them people to play with, finding them people to learn from, investing heavily in all those aunties and uncles, in you know, your own social relationships, so that your offspring has many useful teachers from which to learn, and of course, a group with which to play. And it's very interesting that play is something that does differ across different species, how you play. But one really uh, fascinating study that I thought was just so interesting is that when you play and when you stop playing is very different. So I mentioned earlier, there are chimpanzees and bonobos. They're quite evolutionary divergent. 
despite looking the same, and their societies are very different. Chimpanzees, they're a bit murderous. They're quite violent. There's a lot of aggression. Bonobos, on the other hand, tend to resolve most of their interactions with basically cuddling. There's a lot of free form, free love. They are very um, conflict averse. And one of the things that's interesting is uh, researchers went and looked at the age that various children from these two chimpanzee bonobo groups played and when they stopped playing. And of course, the infants all played and the younger juveniles steadily dropped off and adults played less than the infants. But in bonobos, the juveniles actually played a heck of a lot, like way more than the chimpanzees. And the adults still played. So there was still a reasonable level of play. And so these type of play interactions obviously were critical for teaching the sort of social nuance that you needed to be a bonobo, whereas they may not have been as needed in the chimpanzee society. We know from societies around our globe, ethnographically, uh, we can look at people who are going to grow up to do different kinds of things, and they play with different kinds of toys in different kinds of ways. Girls and boys pick different toys to play with, depending on whether or not they're going to have different gender roles when they grow up. Children of farmers and foragers play for different amounts of time at, unsurprisingly, different games. So we actually, we can look at the culture of play and see huge variation. Whereas work, I think, is something that we can look at and say, that's where we're starting to try and tip the balance from children being invested in to something that's a little bit less of a net resource sink. Well, look, we've seen that high status individuals will invest more in physical capital, right? Their children are going to be healthier, right? Better nourished and so forth. And certainly today we see that high status people will invest a lot more in education, right? So their kids will start making a living, you know, much later in life than folks from kind of lower status positions. Has that always been true? Do you always see disparities in kind of childhood length within communities, right? Where the high status folks get to play, I guess, a lot longer or learn a lot longer or build social capital for a lot longer? I think that's the really important question that we gloss over a lot when we talk about haves and have nots and how we got to the sort of pretty past that we're in now which is that because there's not a lot of opportunity to capitalize when there is no capital, there's not really an opportunity to turn your advantage into an advantage that you can use to lever your child a little bit longer. If your child wants to take up that internship in New York, that's going to be expensive, where that wasn't really an option when there were no internships and there was no New York. So we can think about that final category of investment where you're able to take actual material capital and use it to translate into more time for your child as something that really arose with the rest of kind of translatable material capital, which is somewhere between the time that we invented those villages in the Neolithic and definitely by the time that we got to cities and urban life, which is sort of the phenomenon I look at in my first book, sort of around 5,000 years ago. But if you want to think about the evidence for what changes in human lives, you can start to think about what I've just been looking at, the beautiful site of Balikla in central Anatolia. I've just come back from the field, which is little tiny walls. 
Sounds unimpressive, but those little tiny walls mean that what's behind the walls, in this case, food storage, belongs to someone. It's no longer communal, it's no longer out there. So we can start to see in human history people who have resources and don't have resources. And by the time we get to the really formal mechanism of extending childhood, education, sort of formal pedagogy, formal teaching, where you set someone aside and say, oh, they're studying, they're training, they're an acolyte, they're doing this special process, give them 10 years and they'll come back with a degree. By the time we get there, we have the ability that some of those children are going to be able to extend that beautiful period where they're making great contacts. Their college roommate goes on to start ancient Greek Facebook. I have no idea what ancient Greek Facebook would be, but the same principle applies. And it's really obvious that actually we still do it today. So we have a history of saying who should be educated. 200 years ago, you'd say, well, why would you educate girls? That makes no sense. That's useless, economically pointless. And then we said the same thing about farmers' kids. Why would farmers' kids need to have any education whatsoever? It's not necessary. And we said, okay, well, we can educate them till nine, till 12, till 16. And we're still kind of having these conversations. And in some places, of course, it's gone backwards. In Afghanistan, if you are female, you now leave education at 11, as opposed to going to university, which is had happened previously. So these are real social decisions that are kind of backed by that third and last investment possibility, which is, you know, what we're still using our cultures to decide who is going to extend this long childhood we've evolved to have and who isn't. But these different types of capital seem to be transferable into other types of capital. So presumably go back many thousands of years ago, embodied capital would presumably be translatable into social capital, right? Because you would have high status because you could prevail physically, which then this would give you more resources, which would enable you to give your offspring longer childhoods, I guess, and more social power. And now it's, we translate material wealth into social capital through sending our kids to Ivy League, you know, universities and so forth, right? Yeah, and you can think of embodied capital as not just the physical calories, but also the kind of skill to use them. So the ability to run fast, the practice at throwing an atlatl really super accurately, those are all embodied kind of things. And it's the same if you think of a robin or some other type of bird, you know, it, a series of fat birds are going to be able to build better eggs, are going to be able to pass down a little bit more investment. So it's that sort of investment which can be, yeah, as you say, translated into further advantage further down the line. Well, I mean, it seems like in t today's world, and I know you're not you know, offering any parental advice in any of your books, but you know, it seems like our desire to invest in our offspring has entered into this arms race stage where it may not actually be serving the purpose that inspired it, right? Because we have these hyper-educated children, but they don't seem to be reproducing at a very high rate. <laughs> I think I can speak directly to that, given that I went off and got a series of higher degrees before having kids right around the 40 mark. So it's interesting because that is pushing the absolute boundaries of what our species is capable of. But the thing about all of these older, hyper-invested in parents Perhaps some of them won't reproduce as much, but they may well have the resources 
to swing life for their kids in a way that other people don't. Those resources might still be translatable. And I think it's really interesting that we used to think that this is the period for investment up until 18. And then really, you ought to be thinking about settling down. Should have bought your first house by 25. Oops. <laughs> Didn't work out for a lot of people. So we've set up a society that sort of had some expectations and a culture that had some expectations. And then we changed them. And we are slowly allowing some people in our society to fit our changed expectations. We are pushing our expectations absolutely to their limit in some ways. And that's why things like fertility treatment and things like that are so important now because people are waiting longer because it is harder to meet the sort of traditional adult milestones in kind of the economy we have today. But it's absolutely fascinating that we are at a point where we actually have the medical technology to help our evolution on just a little bit more. And of course, we're going to have to wait another couple hundred thousand years to see how that turns out. Well, I have to ask one other question. I mean, the book Built on Bones is fascinating, and it's really all about how much can you learn about what it was like to be alive by just looking at bones. And I was amazed that you can read the disease history, you can read the work history, you can interpret health, you can understand things about social organization just by looking at bones. And in the Growing Up Human book, you don't spend a whole lot of time talking about teeth and bones. There are a couple of chapters where you talk about it. So why did you write the book? I mean, it seems like a bit of a departure. A lot of it is about you going out of your core area and exploring all these different lines of research. So what motivated you to write that book? Well, there were a couple things. One was that I was suddenly a pregnant person very interested in all of the latest parenting research. And this really covered a lot of the basis. So I wanted to write the book I wanted to read, which was the evolutionary explanation for why my pregnancy was so annoying. But actually, my background is essentially in looking at child health and growth. I do a kind of specialty within biological anthropology, which is looking at the bones and teeth of dead people, which I do at a pretty broad scale as we march our lives into cities and start getting fatter and weirder through the last 15,000 years of history. But what I'm really interested in are the tiny little growth structures in your teeth that act like a little clock and how those can be essentially... It's kind of like ice cores. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like the ice cores where you can see where the forest fires were and the volcanic eruptions and so forth. Exactly. And they kind of look like ice cores because it's sort of white reflective. Yeah. So it's exactly this sort of idea that our bodies have these internal clocks. And not only are they wonderful clocks, so we can calculate the speed at which we're growing and the age at which things happened, but we can see the scars of things that really messed us up. Systemic disturbances, which caused the whole system to go, oh my God, growth stops, everyone hold up, something has happened. My real interest in terms of longer term research is how children grow and what stops them from growing. And it, it all actually ended up feeding into an interest in, well, why are children growing so incredibly slowly in our species? One of the things that we use to actually determine this is teeth. So some very fancy research involving a Neanderthal tooth and a synchrotron showed really interesting results that Neanderthal teeth assumed their final shape, perhaps, a little bit faster than our modern human teeth. 
We know Neanderthals didn't make it in terms of the species race. We probably interbred with them. So, you know, they're still clinging on a little bit, at least if you have European ancestry or Asian ancestry. So it's really interesting to look down the fossil record and look at these clues inside the bones and teeth to show that we actually very slowly evolved a longer childhood, that this is something that we've been pushing towards physically, that we can see that we came from an animal that grew much faster, much more like an ape, basically, and that as we became the homo species like Erectus and antecessor Neanderthal, we spread out our growth period. We got a longer and longer childhood in the animal with the longest childhood, of course, is us. And that might be one of the reasons that we are the species that we are. And you looked at some of the bones of children who had worked in coal mines and in other really difficult jobs, and you could see the damage that they experienced. And what I didn't realize is that our bones aren't completely fused, right, until our teen years. And I I had not known this, and it made me think about what was happening to certain athletes. So I was reading about how the rigorous demands of certain child athletes can lead to lifetimes of injuries. So is it possible for us to physically work our kids too hard? Do they need an adequate dose of rest and recovery in order to make sure that their skeletons and bones are healthy? I mean, I think yeah, I think you definitely, all humans definitely need rest and recovery, whether it's children or the parents of children. I think definitely. And the thing to remember, though, is that in most circumstances, it's very difficult to use your skeleton so aggressively. The children where we saw huge amounts of damage, and it's not huge amounts, but it's things that look a little bit like arthritis in the spine, things that are a result of carrying heavy loads. They were found buried outside a salt mine. We know that there were child workers in the salt mine, so we can imagine that that, they're essentially attempting to do very hard labor, and we know that would affect. And I think it is interesting that you do get child athletes who have either from injury or from sort of repetitive use can end up with later life trouble. So I don't think there's any major danger of most normal humans encountering the absolute limit of what their skeletons can take, given the popularity of things like Minecraft and other digital entertainments. I don't think anyone's in any immediate danger there. But we do have effects from, for instance, carrying more weight on our skeletons for a longer period. That does lead to different types of mechanical loading, which will actually change the shape of your bones. But the nice thing about being a kid is your bones are still growing. As you mentioned, they don't finish, they don't fuse. They're all still remodeling and changing shape. We actually get our final bone fusion. The last thing to fuse is the very edge of your clavicle where it meets your sternum, and that's about 30. So that's the last little bit of bone that actually finishes, so, which is much later than most people think. The rest of it's done by about 20. But so for some reason, that clavicle just doesn't want to finish. But we actually have a pretty good idea that all of this process, it finishes, but then we have the rest of our life to put mechanical strains and stresses on our body that will do all sorts of other things. As anyone who's ever spent a good amount of time running or doing any other vigorous sports will find out. Well, when your successor 10,000 years from now is looking at our bones, it seems like it's going to be a much less interesting job, right? Because there's no syphilis, rickets, all these things are 
less prevalent. What are our bones going to tell us if someone's looking back 10,000 years from now? Is that going to be a boring job? Oh, I think they'll still be fascinating. I mean, how much metalwork are they going to pull out of the ground? I think they're going to find a race of automatons, metal hip joints, knee joints, pacemakers. We actually are slowly acquiring huge new classes of what we would call artifacts that are physically in our person. Who knows if in 10,000 years they'll have any idea what a pacemaker was for. They may wonder at our interesting choice in jewelry. They might think it was some kind of ritual item that was sent off into the afterlife, right? Like those weapons and toys that you talk about in the book. Brenna, thanks so much for joining me. The books, if you want to learn a little bit about paleodemography, if you want to learn a little bit about bioarchaeology, both disciplines that I had never even heard of before reading these books, check out Growing Up Human and also Built on Bones. Thanks so much, Brenna. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Dot com.